0: Hello and welcome to the Bloodstream Podcast, a show serving the greater bleeding disorders community brought to you by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and made possible thanks to our presenting sponsor, Takeda. I am your patient advocate and host, Patrick James Lynch. And
1: I am your healthcare advocate, nonprofit nerd, and your other host, Amy Board, reminding you to please speak with a healthcare professional before making any treatment decision. We've yes. never actually
0: established what credentials are needed for the title of nonprofit nerd.
1: I it's just a nerd who has worked in nonprofits.
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> On today's show, we have a fantastic interview with Kathy McKay yes. and Dana Kuhn yes. about the efforts the Committee of Ten Thousand, also known as COT, are taking to preserve documents. From the Tainted Blood Tragedy. Much more on that as we go. And we've got another Elite Athletes with Hemophilia segment, this time featuring Giovanni Pernuti, a community member, cyclist, and fellow California blood brother out here. We have got all that and more, Amy Board, on this episode.
1: Welcome to Bloodstream. Hey, listeners. Thank you, as always, for joining us today. And if you like what you hear, which I hope you like what you hear, please share this episode on social media and subscribe to the Bloodstream podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I also want
0: to remind you, dear listeners, but the bloodstream podcast is made possible by our presenting sponsor
2: Takeda. Takeda.
0: Yes, that's right. Takeda. Takeda's got this website, bleedingdisorders.com, where you can learn all about Takeda's resources for and commitment to the bleeding disorders community. Takeda leaves
1: in a world free of bleeds. I know, it's pretty dope.
0: And they are dedicated more than (laughs) ever in their efforts to offer a wide range of programs and support to help patients on their treatment journey, wherever on that journey they may be. You can learn more by simply visiting bleedingdisorders.com. One more time in a funny voice, that's (laughs) bleedingdisorders.com. (laughs) <laughs> and for their founding and ongoing support of the Bloodstream Podcast, I would just like to say thanks to Kata. Thank you
1: as always, Takeda.
0: And thank you to segment sponsor Fe for supporting the Elite Athlete segment.
1: Yes. All right,
0: Border, we got a lot to talk about. I
1: know. We have good things to talk about. I want the listeners to hear recently what happened to you. <laughs> <laughs> Cause it's it's very like it's it's like this would only happen it's to so a bleeder. Annoying. Okay. It, yeah. It's like a bleeder story. I bleeder story one on one. was like
0: a week ago I was in this room room recording for another show and even on the drive over i was sort of like huh i got a little weird what's going on it's funny my like left hip is a little (laughs) strange today and never a good sign kind of feels a little okay well it's got a weird sensation in my right elbow and sort of that's kind of strange and as a little time went by i was like this feels a little burny a little tingly Mm. it feels a little early bleedy why do I have a bleed? But if it's a bleed, why is there one in my left hip and in my right elbow? Like I didn't fall down the stairs <laughs> yeah, that like, I don't remember. What'd you
1: do, man? What's this incident?
0: <laughs> so I was like, all right, let me try to do my day. And if I had something that night. I canceled that. I went home early. I was like, I'm going to infuse because and like 25 minutes after infusing was feeling relief and I was like, oh, those were bleeds. So I'm going through, what happened? Why was I bleeding in my left hip,
1: my right elbow? This is the best part of the whole story.
0: And I boiled it down. I forgot (laughs) about one activity, a bleed generating activity. I took a bath.
1: He took a bath. I took a bath. Y'all.
0: Twice. (sighs) In back-to-back days. Uh, And when you have a giant cast uh, on your left leg and for those of you watching the yes, video because and get to sit in the bath with yes, your legs hanging out.
1: Because as you remember, dear listeners, our Patrick hello. had ankle surgery. He Who is He's in a cast.
0: So it turns out if you do this for like 40 minutes in a row, two <laughs> nights in a row, your your left hip and this area is like, And if you're leaning backwards uh, into your right elbow for that period <laughs> of time, your right elbow is like, bah. And if you're at the end of coverage from your last injection, uh. your body's like, uh-oh. So that was my, like, (laughs) oh, I bathed. Yeah. I forgot I bathed. I had to infuse before my bath.
1: It was the most bleeder thing I have heard this week. Uh,
0: So there's that. There's (laughs) just when you think you're doing anything important in your life, you get a bath bleed to remind you.
1: By the way, everyone, that's the bullet on our script here. Just bath bleeds.
0: That's it. (laughs) (laughs) Amy's (laughs) <laughs> Amy's <laughs> highlighting it in real time. I Amy. am. I I'm highlighting it. in real it's time. That's exactly where it is. Um, there's another bullet I should hit on before we like <laughs> get into what the most of this is about. Um, as listeners to this show well know, there were recently some big changes at HFA. We talked about that here on the podcast. Since our last episode, we've made contact with leadership at HFA and I'm expecting to have a call with their CEO and board president here in the not too distant future. And I'm hopeful that that is followed shortly by an interview here in the podcast where they can tell the community directly about what's going on and what all of this means for, amongst other things, Symposium 2024. So more to come on that. But for now, for today's episode, Amy Board, we're going to hear from Gio in a little bit in the Elite Athletes segment, but set up this Really powerful interview that you led with Kathy and Dana, these two community stalwarts who I've, I mean, I've seen them making the rounds and doing things on behalf of this community since I started my work a long time ago. So set this up for us. What are they here to talk about?
1: Well, I will say that Kathy McKay, um, dear community member, she lost her husband um, in the HIV crisis, um, is a regular listener of Bloodstream. So shout out to Kathy Abbott. She's listening to this. But she did what we badger you all to do all the time, <laughs> which is we always say, if there's anything that you'd like to talk about or any topic that we should be aware of, please let us know so we can get... Um, get you or get a guest on the show, and she did that. She badgered us in the most um, wonderful, uh, graceful way. Um, but Kathy is working with Dana Kuhn at uh, the Committee of 10,000, otherwise known as COT. It's still going. It's still going strong. Um, and they are working at the moment to preserve um, a a legion of documents, actually, about um, not about that time, but, but during that time. Hmm. These documents are incredible. They're going to tell us the whole story mm-hmm. of um, kind of where they've been housed and then the fundraising efforts that are slowly starting to happen um, to get these documents preserved mm-hmm. um, so they can be transparent to everyone, to the public, which is which is wonderful, but also I think to preserve this time in our history um, yeah. this year. It's just, it was so interesting to get her email because um, we are working on a film right now that will be uh, premiering this year. It's called On the Shoulders of Giants that is about preserving the legacy of our older generation and the ones that came before us and slowly and slowly and slowly these stories are starting to become quieter and quieter and quieter mm-hmm. um, we're starting to lose our giants val Bias was um, you know a huge um, leader and a giant in our community um and so this is just this interview this this topic is very near and dear to my heart and dana Kuhn is um legendary in our community and I think there is a large population maybe of listeners that have never heard his name before Um, he is wonderful he is um, a blood brother um, among us and has been a leader and an advocacy leader um, truly a legend in this community so I'm it was just a joy to talk to the two of them and I think you'll really enjoy this interview Listeners, I am joined uh, today by legends, I will have to say, legends in the hemophilia community, Dana Kuhn and Kathy McKay. Thank you so much for joining me here on Bloodstream. I feel like I won the prize that I get to be the one talking to the both of you. Thank you for joining me on the podcast.
3: Yes, thank you for giving us a chance to
2: talk about (laughs) advocacy. Thank you. Great to be here.
1: Absolutely. Um, Kathy, I'm going to start with you because... Selfishly, you wrote us an email. We, we badger our listeners to send us emails about topics that we should talk about. And you did it. Sure. <laughs> As a loyal listener, you were like, this is important. Um, so I, I will turn it over to you first. Um, tell me a little bit about your advocacy history here in the hemophilia community, how you got involved. Your husband, Dave, um, tell me a little bit and uh, our listeners about you. Sure. Um,
2: I... <laughs> There's an um. So I will tell you up front that I was not involved in the hemophilia community <clears throat> while my husband was alive. We were living in New Hampshire. His name was Dave, wonderful guy, special education teacher. I I met him and fell in love with him shortly after he showed up on my doorstep on Halloween dressed as Dracula. I didn't understand the uh, humor <laughs> there, but um, I soon learned. And... <laughs> Long story short, we ended up um, getting married, but before then, he actually was diagnosed with HIV and hepatitis C. Now, we didn't know the history of what had happened, and we were not connected to any communities along the way, and therefore, I just didn't know. I didn't know about Cot's existence. I wish I did. I really, Dave and I both could have used the um, support along the way, emotional support that Cot had to offer And so I, you know, he died in June of 1997 and two weeks after he died, I received a call from John Ryder, who was the then social worker for the committee of 10,000. And it was during their, um, uh, the Ricky Ray bill days, the Ricky Ray hemophilia relief fund act, where we were caught was, um, was, had drafted, helped draft a bill, uh, to Dana, correct me if I'm getting in facts wrong here, but to um, to provide a payment to hemophiliacs and their next of kin who contracted HIV from the from uh, from blood products. So I didn't. John quickly alerted me to the fact to to the history and of cot. I you know I asked who's what is cot and who is Ricky Ray, and I became educated very quickly, and I realized that. Mm-hmm. So much had come before me that I was benefiting from, for example, the class action lawsuit, which mm-hmm. Cott was involved in, um, the mm-hmm. Ricky Ray bill, which had been going on mm-hmm. behind the scenes, um, Dana's work with Cot and other uh, folks that he will speak to speak about, I'm sure, who were involved in sort of the investigative part of, of the blood supply crisis And I realized this, so I realized this just didn't happen out of thin air, you know, that I now, being a part of this community, had an obligation to do at least my part, um, no matter how small in comparison to, you know, what I call these giants that (laughs) came before me. Um, So that's when I, you know, just started, um, started going to Washington several times a year until Ricky Ray was passed. The Ricky Ray bill was passed and funded. Along the way, I took pictures because I was a, a newspaper photographer. So I just felt instinct, instinctively at first I began taking photographs just to document this history. and, um, And it really became my mission in life to keep this history alive and to make sure that it is preserved and that we don't forget about it because I've noticed back then and even today, so few people know about what happened with the blood supply. And again, it's all about, mm-hmm. it may seem cliche at this point, but it's really all about making sure such a, um, such a tragedy does not occur again. So it's all about edu- preservation and education. Thank you, Kathy. before we
1: move on. Um, Dana, I had the opportunity last year to um, interview several of your advocacy peers from back in the day, and there was one name that just was said all over, and it was yours. And so when I finally met you last year, I felt like I was meeting a celebrity (laughs) um, because, you know, I'm an idiot like that. Um, So I'm so excited to get an opportunity to speak with you now. And I wondered if you could share with our listeners a little bit about the evolution of COT. Um, What was its genesis? um, What was it set up for? And how it has um, kind of evolved throughout the years?
3: Sure. First, I want to say, um, you know, how glad I am to have an opportunity to kind of share with Kathy. And Kathy is absolutely superb. Um, She's a star. and (laughs) And the reason she's a star is because you know, she captured what was happening on film. And it was, you know, pictures worth a thousand words. If we didn't have the pictures that she took to go along with the stories, you would really, it wouldn't make the impact that it makes today. And it's great to kind of have an opportunity to see all the pictures that she put together during the times that I call them the tumultuous years. Uh, mm-hmm. Really, the the tumultuous years from 1992 to about, probably about 1995, 96, mm-hmm. and um, but her pictures, you know, they you look at them and you just tears well up in my eyes when I look at them and and think about where we were at those times and were we ever going to accomplish what we did, um, mm-hmm. and and it did, it happened, it all happened, but. That's not the question you asked me. So the question you asked me is, how did uh, Cot come along? Well, unfortunately, a lot of the um, uh, a lot of the founders and a lot of the people who are part of Cot are gone. and it it, it, it really breaks my heart. Um, fine people that really were involved in Cot. And uh, Cot was a real um, energizer to what was taking place. They marched to um, uh, a beat of a different drum, or a different beat of a different drum, you know. They were great Hmm. at um, being able to advocate. And, you know, I came along in, uh, it was probably, I'm trying to think about it, it was about 1993. Um, Prior to that, I was very involved with NHF, and NHF was, uh, at that time, tea-tottering about whether or not they wanted to let people associate hemophilia and AIDS. And Mm -hmm. um, it was was very silent, and they kept silent, Mm -hmm. and they encouraged people to be silent because of the discrimination that they uh, saw happen to not only Ryan uh, White, but Ricky Ray and their family. And so everybody was very silent about all of this, and I, I remember, um, you know, I think what was a catalyst of things is at that point no one was coming out and who had hemophilia, and families were coming out telling anybody that they were infected with HIV. There were some that were going through litigation, um, and um, but those were the really the only ones that. Uh, were kind of, um, I guess, public, But that was even sheltered too, because of the the lawsuits that were taking place. And these are more private lawsuits. Um, and I know that, um, you know, I came out um, in 1992 of September and um, on National Public Radio, um, Alex um, Chadwick, who did Morning Edition, uh, I sent him a lot of information that I had gathered from the Trail of AIDS and the cumi- AIDS and the hemophilia community, about a 250-page document. And, um, and that was a document that really was a catalyst for so many things that took place, uh, lawsuits, um, um, the Institute of Medicine uh, study, and then eventually the class action suit. But where, where I came in contact with... Um, with COT was, um, I'd have to say, first of all, through um, Michael Rosenberg and the Peer Association, and, um, and they, were, they were really, um, uh, you know, I would call them activists, and they really, and Michael was wonderful at at least starting the groundwork of finding uh, documents that uh, revealed what the government knew and what pharmaceutical companies knew uh, when and um, at you know what dates and started that and then he became sick. But anyway, in 1992, when I was um, um, on Pu- National Public Radio, um, I was introduced as Mr. X. And, um, and by the end, and then uh, there was also Jonathan Wadley was on that broadcast, but he would not reveal his name. And the reason he didn't reveal his name is because he had a job and he didn't and he was trying to again afraid of the discrimination and yeah. uh, that could happen and how he could lose his job well i was working in the hospital at that time and i had gotten a job came through the hell that i came through and um and it was at the point of of um in that inter- interview that I revealed all the documents that I had and, and Alex Chad was kept on asking questions. And finally, he was coming to the end of the interview and he said, he says, are you willing to tell us your name, Mr. X? And I said, yes, it's Dana Kuhn. And I'll tell you, the phone started ringing off the hook. And a Jeff called oh. me, people were calling me and they were just saying, why did you do that? Why did you associate hemophilia and AIDS? Why, you know, we're you know they no one wanted to really do that. And I thought, well, I have nothing to lose. I lost a lot. I have everything Oof. to gain now, and that's what I did. And that's that's what catapulted me into uh, doing what I was supposed to do: is find out why these there were unnecessary deaths in this community, including my wife's mm-hmm. death, and. When I came out of um, being silent and being silent no more, that's when I um, learned about um, the Committee of Ten Thousand. And the first person that I had met were Jonathan and Corey Dubin and Tom Fahey. Um, I was invited for some reason. They they had learned about me, and I went to, up to Boston area. They had a retreat and they invited me to come to it. And I brought my documents and everything. And that's where I met them and just bonded with them and realized that, you know, we've got to do something to together to, um, bring an end to this. First of all, find a way to bring some justice to what happened and then look for a preventative way for this never to happen again. And that's where mm-hmm. I met, um, jonathan and corey and um uh you know I, I and and tom fahey and and just um just wonderful people who you know this world misses and we miss every day so that's how cot real, that i got involved with cot and then they had uh they also had the Haas brothers um uh, there was um tim and greg and their dad um while they were on cot their dad was still a board member of the National Hemophilia Foundation. And they were on the COT board. It was really, uh, you know, kind of very interesting, the dynamics that were going on at that time. Um, wow. And then I also met um, Matt and, and Leo Murphy, who were all just great advocates. So that's what how I came to know COT and then worked with COT constantly as their, I guess you would call, they called me their legislative um, advocate or director of advocacy. And that's when I started to go to the Hill probably every other week.
1: Dana, that's that's fantastic uh, backstory. And I, I was really taken by um, how you put it, that the you know, kind of the word on the street was silence, you know, and that was really, you know, filtered down from the top, um, out of fear. Um, there's some understanding, I guess, about, about that, about, um, you know, being targeted in a certain way. Um, but I, I can't help think, you know, here today, um, I, I can't help think that it's almost the same. You know we don't we don't talk about it very much in the hemophilia community, um, and that's why we're really here today um, about the work that Cot has continued to do and some of the work that you all are continuing to do. Um, so Kathy and Dana, tell me a little bit about um, what Cot has been doing um, the last several decades leading up to this moment and what you all um, what you all are doing in order to preserve the history and to preserve some. Of these documents that are so crucial um to that time
3: yeah and i um i didn't you know i left cot because i ended up starting uh patient services incorporated psi I had to, had to find the time to leave but i did not leave cot basically until after uh we got the ricky ray funding and and that came in 1998 um mm-hmm. so we were able to uh secure that but all along that, um, it was very interesting that COT um, had two branches that it went. One was legislative with the government, and that ended up going through IOM and the Academy of Sciences, which then led to um, the report. And then also, it, they were going the class action suit direction, and that happened September 30, 1993 where the Mm. class action uh, um, suit was certified in Chicago. And so we, we had two tracks that were going, legislative and lawsuit. And Corey kind of, um, Jonathan kind of led the way for going um, through the lawsuit. Um, And then Corey and I kind of led the way going the direction of legislative um, action. And then Corey flipped back and forth between legislative and, and, um, and the, the lawsuit. And he just was right in the middle of all those things. And it was really good that, um, you know, we had these opportunities to work. And I didn't get too much involved with the class action lawsuit because I was spending all my time in the legislative. That's what I knew how to do best. That was my, uh, that was my bailiwick. I can do that well. And um, Jonathan... Was very well at doing very well at the, at the class action suit and working with the lawyers there. So during those during those years, we that those were the directions we were going. And also, it was interesting. I don't think people really knew this, but um, it was around. I'm trying to think of the date. I have my um, I have my documents here someplace here, um, but it was around 19, I think it was someplace around 1996, somewhere around there, um, that, and I'll look it up and we could probably get more details on it, but anyway, um, people were dissatisfied with NHF and saying it was more for um, the, the, the social workers the doctors the nurses not so much for the families and so mm-hmm. um, I know Jan Hamilton and uh, and many others all got together and said let's form a um, organization that will be for the community for the families mm-hmm. for the patients for you know the, the you know the people who are directly involved with hemophilia so they started, or uh, we met together in D.C. I remember we—I think it was one of the, one of the restaurants in Georgetown we met at, and everybody got together. Corey was there, and and Jonathan was there, and and there were other key people that were there. And Cot kind of led the thing in the whole details of putting together what became called the Hemophilia Federation of America, and so. Um, People don't know that probably myself and Corey and Jonathan were kind of some of the early helping founders of, um, you know, Hemophilia Federation of America. But again, Mm -hmm. we didn't make a big thing of it. I spent more of my time, again, doing advocacy. But I was bringing that perspective into as they were developing around the table, kind of like a round table dinner, you know, what is... What is this Hemophilia Federation of America going to do? So Cot was Mm. very instrumental in starting um, Mm. Hemophilia Federation of America.
1: That's fantastic. And Kathy, what is uh, is some of the work that you all are doing now to really preserve that legacy, to preserve the history um, of the blood supply and
2: uh, some of the HIV crisis? As I mentioned, I have been more on the periphery of COT. I'm actually a board member now, I should say. I was just elected a board member, so.
1: You should say. (laughs)
2: Yes. (laughs) I know, I forget these things. So I am a current (laughs) board member, and, um, but I do know that being on the periphery before that, that COT has been um, acting as a watchdog with new treatments, and just kind of monitoring uh, safety and efficacy, and raising any questions that may arise uh, concerning either of those. But more recently with this quest to find this permanent home, that's really currently Mm -hmm. our priority. uh, Again, because this history has to go somewhere, again, for preservation Mm -hmm. purposes, for educational purposes. And, you know, it's it's not... (laughs) Fewer and fewer people are around that can speak to this. And we really want to make sure that this is safe and secure. Uh, We don't want to forget history. We don't want to forget other Mm -hmm. tragic, you know, other medical tragedies. Throughout history, terrible things have always happened. And we want to make sure, we always want to make sure we learn from our past mistakes. And so because this history needs a home, this is where we are putting 100% of our effort right now. And so right now, UCSF, uh, once they agree to take these documents, we have shipped all of our documents to the library. They are there now. They're in Mm -hmm. 50 banker boxes. Um, They do include some some personal documents, too. And I'll just add quickly that anybody from the community that has any documents that they believe are of historic value may add them to the collection, that they will be doing that. Mm. For example, Dana's Trail of AIDS is, is certainly part of that connection. But right now we need to fundraise because it's going to take that to get the job done. Otherwise we're back to square one, finding a new home. And again, chances are wherever we go, we're going to need to fundraise. So UCSF has launched a fundraising campaign and it has it's just gone live but we're, we're right now beginning to really spread the word um you can find the campaign on um cots website cott1.org as uh, there's a link to the fundraising as well as the cot facebook page will also will we'll certainly be posting it multiple times up there so this is this is a huge undertaking i mean it takes a lot of it takes a lot of effort. Um, you know, it's a team effort, mm-hmm. and it, it just we have to spread mm-hmm. the word. So that's that's where our focus is right now. And then we'll reassess after, you know, as things get rolling and we get closer to our goal, we'll reassess cuts cuts future. Um, mission.
1: So I heard two calls to action. One, um, listeners, if you have documents in your possession that have some historical value, um, please contact COT. Um, We'll give you all of that information in our program notes um, and they can kind of um, evaluate that and see if that can't be preserved. And also you're starting to fundraise for this. Um, And Kathy, tell me a little bit about um, what documents are included and just like the process, like why do we have to fundraise? Why is this, why is this, uh, an endeavor that requires funding?
2: Sure. Uh, it, uh, I'll, will answer the second question first. It requires funding because okay. as I mentioned, there's 50 large boxes with documents and, and some of them, yeah. some of them are redundant, um, but it's going to require professional archivists to actually go through the documents one by one, decide, you know, which which ones to keep. They're going to need to, likely will need to find, a, get a little more um, background to these documents because if you read these documents, mm-hmm. you may not know exactly what it's relating to. So it's going to require communicating with, with folks, that, you know, caught folks to you know give them some context for these documents and so to go through 50 boxes of of paperwork just requires a lot of manpower and um and Mm. continued research they have first what they will do is they will index they will once they know what all of these papers are they will index them it will be a digital archive and then that did that indexing will be on the use on the um, special co- archives and special collections website uh, with UCSF on, on their on their page, and then if anybody, then people can link to those specific documents. Now, not a hundred percent of those documents will be up there um, for people to see online right. because it's just too too much. So, if anybody wishes to. Mm. Um, for free get a hard copy or you know have a document emailed they may do that as well so it's just cool. a huge under- undertaking and then yeah the the you know there's there's overhead costs and costs to actually we we want to preserve mm. the papers because a lot of the papers are mm. computer printouts which are fading in time so that has to be physically mm. preserved as well oh that's fantastic
1: And Dana and Kathy tell me a little bit um, what are some of the documents that are included (laughs) do we know
3: (laughs) thousands and thousands and Uh, thousands and they're they go they date back all the way to um, what manufacturers were saying in the very beginning of the 80s Um, and these are the kind of documents that Corey was collecting and that I was collecting michael rosenberg was collecting and um it was in that and that's why i called it the trail of aids in the hemophilia community because mm. when um when i had put all that i had together that michael rosenberg gave me um it that's just 250 pages it's just a small amount of the documents that are all out there there's documents about lawsuits and and, and many of these boxes of are what Corey collected. And, um, Mm -hmm. and that's why they found their home, um, in, in the university. And they, they had, uh, they were legal. They talked about the class action Mm -hmm. suit. They talked about, uh, blood safety, because that's, again, one Mm -hmm. of the biggest things that we were doing is blood safety. My, again, my job was kind of more legislative and blood safety and Corey, again, involved with it. And, um, and I think, these documents are going to be important because you'll you'll see exactly where our government went wrong and where the, the pharmaceutical companies went wrong. And as mm. Kathy said, we got to learn how to yeah. be vigilant and be able to make mm. sure these things don't happen again. And, mm. you know, I, I, I want to give, just to go back a little bit and give credit to Corey because Corey... We made sure, Cot made sure that he was on the advisory committee of blood. Uh, I mean, he was on BPAC, um, the blood products advisory committee, BPAC. And that was quite a feat to be able to get a consumer on that with all these doctors and Corey did a wonderful job advocating for us on that. And we would all go to those meetings and, and come up with questions. And then I was the one who got on to the advisory committee of blood safety and availability, which came out of the, um, Institute of medicine report. And so we had all these consumers or consumers that would always now have a seat on these government committees. And that's what we want to make sure still happens. And we have to have, we have to have people who are trained and qualified to be able to do that. Um, and I think these documents in history will help people understand that.
1: Mm. Dana, do you think um, there'll be any pushback <laughs> from the powers that be?
3: Um, like which powers that be? The government?
1: I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I would assume there would be uh, some industries that would not that would would prefer not to have these documents public.
3: Um. Well, it's too late. <laughs> it's, they already are public through the Freedom Bravo. of Information Act and they're they're already public, um, you know, through the government and uh, they're there you can go out and look for them and you can find them. But now they're going to be as I think that this project is going to be is very important. It's going to be all categorized and it will be, mm. um, you know, put into some kind of logical order. And as I said, the, the, there was so much that went on between 1992 and 1995 and during those tumultuous years. Um, it's just like, I have, um, I could show you uh, just to hold it up. I mean, just a this is a timeline of what happened, when, and what was going on. And wow. this is why when they get that together out there I I would love to be able to bring some of this timeline and you know I'm kind of like a a wannabe historian you know (laughs) (laughs) but I'm I didn't do it purposely it came by you know just the way it happened in life and wanted to make some sense of things
1: well Dana Kathy thank you so much for joining us and for sharing this um to our listeners I can um absolutely confirm that our listenership is going to support this um I will personally support it um and we'd love to have you back to get kind of some updates um
2: throughout the year Kathy one more yeah, thing yeah and I'd like to say in terms of um industry and and current mm. concern it, there's all yeah. there's different people in place now so I I do mm. You know, there's different people in place now, and and my hope would be that they could look at this with historic value as well. So, yes, one hundred percent. And Kathy, one more thing
3: is, I guess if it's a fundraiser, where would people send their funds to? Their donation <laughs> funds to support this.
2: There is a link on the COT website, c o t t one dot org. Okay. And that first on that first page, there will be a link to um, donate to the to the project, as well as on the Committee of Ten Thousand Facebook page. We will very shortly, by the time this airs, we will have posted um, the link as well. So, and it's tax it's a tax deductible donation, of course. Fantastic. And that- We're gonna have all that info
1: on the program notes, y'all.
2: Great. Right.
1: Thank you so much, Dana and Kathy. I'm sure we'll have you back. Thank you for that history and thank you for the work that you have done and are still continuing to do.
0: Thank you, Kathy, and thank you, Dana. Moving into our Elite Athletes with Hemophilia segment, which is, of course, supported by Sanofi, and Sanofi seeks to expand the idea of what's possible for the hemophilia community. Take a deeper look at the science behind hemophilia and an important connection between factor activity levels and potential activities
4: at levelsmatter.com. Today on Redefining Impossible, the podcast we plunge into the heart of a story where sheer will clashes with the constraints of the human body. In a narrative that echoes the grit and determination of the most gripping sagas, we meet Giovanni Pernuti, a man who's turned the tides of his fate on a bicycle. A self-described rebel hemophiliac, Giovanni's journey isn't about defying the odds for glory. It's about a relentless pursuit of passion, a life lived peddling against the challenges of severe hemophilia. In a world where limitations are often set by circumstances, Giovanni rides a different path, one that intertwines the risks of his condition with the freedom of the open road. Stay tuned as we unravel the tale of this extraordinary cyclist, whose story redefines what it means to push the boundaries of the possible. Hemophilia severity is determined by factor activity levels a measurement of how much factor you have in your blood at the time of diagnosis. The more factor you have in your body over time, the better your bleed protection is, which is why many people with hemophilia choose to treat prophylactically. Your doctor can perform measurements to evaluate the factor activity levels in your blood. Learn more about the importance of factor activity levels by talking to your doctor and visiting levelsmatter.com.
5: My name is Giovanni Pernuti, uh, hemophiliac, hemophilia A severe.
4: Giovanni's story isn't about elite athleticism, but rather a steadfast commitment to maintaining fitness and a sense of normalcy, all while navigating the complexities of hemophilia.
5: Yeah, so um, growing up in the late 80s, early 90s, um, I kind of always looked at myself as the rebel hemophiliac All the doctors at that point always said, no, can't play sports, can't do this and that. And I went to a small school, a small private Catholic school, and to kind of fit in, I was always willing to play sports.
4: His voice carries the echoes of a childhood spent defying norms, pushing against the cautious voices of medical experts.
5: I played flag football in grade school, basketball, um, cross country and track in high school, and soccer. So I was always active. Uh, for better or for worse, uh, as they say, through all the injuries and through all the uh, ups and downs that that come along with it, the bleeds, the hospitalizations and stuff like that.
4: But Giovanni's journey wasn't without its tribulations. The rebellion of his youth came at a cost.
5: Later on in life is when I started suffering the effects of so many bleeds. I had a really bad ankle um, and I got it fused.
4: In the wake of his ankle fusion, Giovanni faced a crossroads the end of his athletic pursuits or the beginning of a new chapter
5: and i still wanted to be active um and so i asked one of my other uh brothers like what can i do and he put me on the cycling um and i just kind of took on it bought a bike and just started doing it and just kind of got more and more into it and just went uh, down the rabbit hole as they say and i still wanted to be active um and so i asked one of my other uh Emo brothers, like, what can I do? And he put me on the cycling. um, And I just kind of took on it, bought a bike, and just started doing it and just kind of got more and more into it and just went uh, down the rabbit hole, as they say.
4: Cycling offered Giovanni not just a physical outlet, but a path to reclaim his active lifestyle. His approach to his condition and his sport is methodical, careful, yet daring.
5: I have kept up to date on my prophylaxis and I kept in tune with my body for the most part. I know what I can and can't do. I know my limitations at this point um, and if I felt like I, I didn't want to do it, I, I, I wouldn't.
4: His words reflected deep understanding of his own limits and strengths, a balance of ambition and caution.
5: So every, every year post ankle surgery I gave myself a goal, you're going to ride X amount of miles or you're going to ride in this race.
4: But it's not just about the personal challenges. For Giovanni, cycling is also about community, finding a shared passion in the face of shared adversity.
5: We had a great group of guys, some really good friends of mine within the hemophilia community. Uh, We rode the uh, bike portion of the Long Beach Marathon for a couple years straight.
4: His journey is a blend of personal triumphs and collective experiences, a testament to the power of community.
5: I think it's all about setting expectations, reasonable expectations, and having a plan on how to accomplish it.
4: Giovanni's tale isn't just about overcoming hemophilia to cycle, it's about setting a vision, pushing beyond the can'ts and shouldn'ts, and riding into a future he crafts for himself, one pedal stroke at a time.
5: So I think it's just, you have a plan in place, you have a conversation with your team, um, your support system, and, and then you go from there.
4: In Giovanni Pernudi, we find not just a cyclist, but a beacon of hope and a living example that limitations are often just starting lines or greater journeys. This has been Redefining Impossible, the podcast, where the impossible is just a word for the next challenge on the road. Thanks for joining us on this episode. Don't forget to watch the film Redefining Impossible for free at eliteathleteswithhemophilia.com. And thanks once again to Santa Fe for sponsoring this segment. I'm Keith Corneluk, and I'll talk to you next month on Redefining Impossible, the podcast, only on Bloodstream.
0: Sanofi aims to raise the bar for the patients living with hemophilia. Reimagine what's possible by visiting rareblooddisorders.com to hear more about Sanofi's dedication to the bleeding disorders community. All right. Amy Board, great episode, great Geo, episode. Dana, Kathy, thank you all for your contributions, thank you for your work on this one, Amy, to Keith Japneet and the entire team, as always, thank you, and none of this would be possible without our presenting sponsor, Takeda, reminder, bleedingdisorders.com to learn more, and thanks as well to Sanofi for supporting the Elite Athletes segment, visit Levels Matter or rareblooddisorders.com to learn more about their work. All right, Amy Board. our next episode is on February 9th. We're already moving into the month of February, I know. checking a month off of 2024. Just Holy zoom it through smokes. this year. Do you have your New Year's plans yet?
1: My new, for next year?
0: Yeah, it's coming. We're already in February,
1: Amy. You just gave me anxiety like through my sternum.
0: What else is now?
5: <sighs> <laughs>
0: what? What would I be good for, if not bestowing anxiety on those I love?
1: Oh, my God. <laughs> I do not have my New Year's plans, but I do know what's coming up on the February 9th episode of Bloodstream. We'll take it. Okay, great. So we have another gene therapy segment. I will say the last episode of Bloodstream was a baller. It had a lot of listens, and yeah. I think there was a lot of things, HFA, but also our new gene therapy segment. Mm-hmm. I have to say, um, it is presented by CSL Baring and it's just uh, been a joy to work on. It's very exciting. And we'll be back with another segment. We have the science behind gene therapy and we have the people we have been talking to uh, just in the course of the segment. You're going to get great stuff all year round. So anyway, I stick around next episode for that one.
0: And I just want to add a little bit of color to this. And I think Keith Japneet, we can keep all this in for the listeners sticking around to the very end. You deserve to hear this behind the scenes <laughs> kind of conversation. <laughs> Commercializing gene therapy, getting to a point where it's actually a treatment option was a major step one. And now there are questions around, but is this actually right for me? Can I actually access this? Will my insurance company pay for this? Is my hemophilia treatment center even offering this? Can I keep up with all of the follow-up? What will the benefit be versus factor or emicizumab? Is it really worth it for me? Some of this may sound obvious, but none of this is relevant when we're in clinical trials. We are not in clinical trials anymore. So how are patients, providers, treatment centers, insurers, and all stakeholders in this gene therapy for hemophilia universe, how are they approaching this moment? That's what this segment is intended to help deconstruct and answer, and we want you to benefit from everything on it. So check out the new gene therapy segment on The Bloodstream Podcast. And with that, that that is is all. all.
1: For this, for this episode. episode.
0: <laughs> uh, be sure to subscribe to the Bloodstream Podcast wherever you listen to have the next episode delivered to you the moment it goes live.
1: Loyal listeners, as always, hit us up at mailbag of bloodstreammedia.com. Thanks, Kathy. That's what Kathy did. You could be like W-K-D. Kathy. WWKD. <laughs> com. You can email us and, of course, you can find us on social media. We're on all of the social medias.
0: Every single one of them. And all the things. That may not be true, but I am your host, Patrick James Lynch.
1: <laughs> and I am your other host, Amy Borden.
0: That is true. And until next time, mm-hmm. take self care of yourself. Bye, everybody.
1: Bye bye.